All right, testing. Everybody hear me? So far, so good. All right, we are here to talk about your book, which was published, were you on day two, day three? Three days ago. Three days, you're still here. So this book, I read this book, and um, what I was thinking about it when I read it is, it, it kind of reminded me of this period in my own life when sort of looking around at the world and trying to figure out why everything felt so much more challenging and weirder and exploitative and confused than I remembered it feeling before. That was a whole set of things I was trying to figure out. But also with myself, like what was going on with, with my own mind and my own body? Why did I say that I wanted some things, but I, everything I was doing was taking me the opposite direction? And what's kind of amazing about this book is it really is about both of those sets of questions. And I wanted to just talk to you about probably the most obvious question, which is the title. Tell me about this title and, and why you chose it. Well, first of all, reading your book, Educated, what struck me is that as you were going through that life, that for so many people it would seem so strange. For you it seemed totally normal. So your isolation at the base of the, the mountain, your family's, your father's paranoid view of the world, the defensiveness, the values they tried to inculcate, they seem to you perfectly normal because that's what you knew. You knew nothing else. It's the same with our culture. So that in, in the introduction of the book, we quote David Foster Wallace, the great writer, um, so great that it's hard to even understand what he's talking about some of the time. <laughs> But, but uh, he, he gives this uh, anecdote at a, at a college um, graduation ceremony. He gives this talk where he, say, he gives this anecdote of two fish, two young fish swimming along and an older member of the species meets them and greets them and says, good morning boys, how's the water? And the two, bo and the two young fish swim on for a while and one of them turns to the other one and says, what the hell is water? <laughs> and David Foster Wallace makes the point that when something is so big and so close to you, you don't even recognize it. And what I'm saying is that trauma is so normalized in our society that we don't even recognize it anymore. In fact, what we, th we think that it's normal, which is a myth, because from the point of view of human evolution and human needs, the values and the practices, uh, the, ch the child raising, the education that people receive, the way we relate to each other, the, what we believe about our nature are completely abnormal from the point of view of human evolution and human needs. So this is a myth. And um, we thought in the beginning uh, I would bring on my brilliant co-writer and son, Daniel, who will read a short segment from the book, the indication or the, the purpose of which is to indicate just how normalized trauma has become in our society. So Daniel, if you're within hearing shot, hear shot, please come out. This is my co-writer, Daniel. Hi folks. This is from chapter 24 called, we, uh, I think the Americans, you know, we're Canadians here, but I feel like you're, this crowd of all people is gonna get this title. We feel their pain, our trauma-infused politics. 
The subliminal beliefs leaders hold about human nature, the world, and their position in it, and the unconscious impulses that motivate their actions are of great consequence for their politics, which is to say, for our lives and for our world. The worldview they developed early in life, under the impact of misfortunes they did not choose and could not control, imbues how they feel about, interact with, and act upon the universe and their fellow beings decades later. And yet, as the British psychotherapist Sue Gerhardt points out, quote, we rarely address the underlying psychological and emotional dynamics of our public figures or our culture as a whole. Let's briefly examine two pairs, but we're gonna skip one of the pairs because it's Canadian and we don't need to go there, <laughs> of political nemeses all four of whom, all two of whom in this case, have convinced millions of people to entrust them with their great power. What makes each of them so appealing and so appalling, depending on who's observing, owes much to personality traits forged in the crucible of early trauma. And then we talk about Stephen Harper, the former PM, and Justin Trudeau, the current PM. According to the popular narrative, there could have been no more diametrical opposites in American politics, whether gauged by demographic appeal, ethical values, or personality, than 2016 presidential opponents Donald J. Trump and Hillary Rodham Clinton. The differences are easy to spot. The similarities, subtler but instructive. It may come as a surprise to supporters of both, for example, to read a Scientific American analysis published in 2016 that pointed out how many qualities that de define psychopathy are routinely found in top politicians. One was cold-heartedness, a trait on which Trump and his then opponent Clinton scored in the upper quintile. Donald Trump's cartoonishness, the havoc he wreaked on the US political system, and the cultural tumult around his ascendancy can too easily obscure what a sad, thoroughly wounded person he is. It took one who knows him better than most, his psychologist niece, Mary Trump, to cut through both the hoopla and the opprobrium to the dark heart of the matter. We now know from Mary's revealing 2020 biography, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man, that the young Donald had plenty of cause to push reality out of mind and sight to become grandiose, narcissistic, combative, and utterly opportunistic. Deep down, I have no problem describing him as a sociopath, Mary has said, of Donald's father, Fred, the paterfamilias. Quote, he has no real human feeling and he treated his children variously with contempt, end quote. Her own father, Fred Jr., Donald's older sibling was driven by childhood trauma to alcoholism and an early death at age 41. The world has seen what Donald was driven to. It oughtn't to have required Mary Trump's revelations to uncover the suffering behind the huckster president's persona, but in our trauma-blind world, it did. He is a poster child for trauma, the psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk told me. Is there any water around? It would help me get through. Only if that's the only option. Oh, thank you. I have natural immunity.
The journalist Tony Schwartz got an up-close view when he ghostwrote Trump's best-selling The Art of the Deal. Lying is second nature to him, Schwartz told The New Yorker years later. More than anyone else I have ever met, Trump has the ability to convince himself that whatever he is saying at any given moment is true, or sort of true, or at least ought to be true. Second nature, as we have noted before, is nobody's real nature. No one's original nature impels them to lie. There are plenty of congenial liars, but no congenital ones. Friedrich Nietzsche once wrote somewhere, well, wrote somewhere, that people lie their way out of reality when they have been hurt by reality. And this is eminently true of Donald Trump's origin story. Lying, automatic or deliberate, first insulated him from, the devastating, from devastating rejection in childhood and later served him in the realm of political power. Hillary Clinton is still admired and pined for by many as a tenacious survivor and the rightful winner of the 2016 election. Compared with Trump, at least, she is a paragon of poise, grace, empathy, hard work, and reason. What almost never gets asked is, where do such relentless ambition and tenacity come from, and at what cost? Ought we really to celebrate it, or is it in its own way also an unhealthy norm, even if not to the same degree as Trump's bloviating bluster? Such questions were completely bypassed in the hagiographic haze of Clinton's campaign in ways I found literally incredible. One moment in particular stuck with me. It demonstrates how readily we normalize and lionize the winning personalities of our leaders. On the evening of her nomination, a video celebrating Hillary's life and achievements was broadcast to an international audience narrated by the actor Morgan Freeman, the voice of God. <laughs> in it, the candidate quoted a life lesson imparted to her in childhood by her stern, exacting father. Don't whine, don't complain, do what you are supposed to do, do it to the best of your ability. By all indications, this was a whitewash. As we know from biographical accounts, the father could be capricious and cruel. Quote from the biography, he hurled, barding, uh, excuse me, he hurled biting sarcasm at his wife and his only daughter and spanked, at times excessively, his three children to keep them in line, end quote. In the video, Secretary Clinton also shared, my mother wanted me to be resilient. She wanted me to be brave. She then related an instance of how this quote-unquote resilience was inculcated. I was four, and there were lots of kids in the neighborhood. I would come out and have a bow in my hair, and the kids would all pick on me. It was my first experience of being bullied, and I was terrified. One day, I ran into the house, and my mother met me, and she said to me, there is no room for cowards in this house. You go back outside and figure out how you are going to deal with what those kids are doing. That isn't a call to resilience, but to repression. The message a young child receives in such a circumstance is, vulnerability is shameful in this house. There is no room for your fear. Do not feel or show your pain. Suck up your feelings. You are on your own. Don't expect any empathy here. And yet, no one in the arena seemed to find this blow to a small child's sensibility disturbing. 
no media commentator so much as registered that this hand-picked example of supposedly inspiring parenting was, in fact, a public celebration of trauma. No observer suggested that a little girl seeking the safety of the parent's embrace is hardly a coward. She is a normal four-year-old. In any case, the life lesson about pushing through the pain did its work. More than six decades later, a campaigning Clinton was ill and dehydrated with pneumonia, but hid her weakness from everyone until she collapsed in the street. I'm feeling great, she unconvincingly assured the public the same day. It's a beautiful day in New York. No doubt the same self-suppressing dynamic compelled her to tolerate her husband's philandering proclivities, described by the late writer Joan Didion as the familiar predatory sexuality of the provincial adolescent. In stereotypical trauma impact fashion, Hillary blamed herself for her spouse's infidelity. He was under great stress and she had not sufficiently tended to his emotional needs, she told a friend, thus aligning with women's assigned role in the culture of patriarchy. She thinks she was not smart enough, not sensitive enough, not free of her own concerns and struggles to realize the price he was paying, this close confidant summarized Hillary's views. The internalized lack of empathy showed itself during the election campaign when she carelessly, but all the more tellingly, dubbed half of Trump's base a basket of deplorables, revealing to a wide swath of America what they already knew in their bones, that many urban elites view them with smug contempt as people whose economic, political, and moral grievances can be ignored. The deplorables retort came that November in the form of a stunning political upset. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the conservative columnist David Brooks, wrote discerningly in 2016, both ultimately hew to a distrustful, stark, combative, zero-sum view of life. The idea that making it in this world is an unforgiving slog and that giving other, given other people's selfish natures, vulnerability is dangerous, end quote. That sense of danger, I would only add, started long before their forays into political life, although their respective supporters would likely shudder at the thought of them being remotely similar, Trump and Clinton were a match made in childhood suffering. I think water is going to be a theme tonight. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a good segue from there to ask you about uh, small t traumas. You write yeah. about small t traumas in your book. And I was really interested when I read that because I have people come up to me at my events and people who've, who've clearly suffered. You know, they're struggling with something real. And they read my book and they say, well, I can't really... I have no right to have any problems because of what you went through. And then they, they think, oh, because somebody wasn't able to go to school or something, then it must invalidate what they experienced. And one of the things I really liked about your book was taking seriously the notion, first off, there's almost nothing to be gained in comparing. But also, there's, there's different kinds of ways that people can be hurt. And I really like you quote John Bowlby, who's the attachment kind yeah. of... Um, almost founding father, uh, who defines these kinds of small traumas as nothing happening when something profitable might have happened. Yeah. And 
Uh, I just wonder if you would talk a little bit about what we what we what we what you mean by small T traumas and why they're why they're so crucial. Sure. So that was actually D.W. Winnicott. Uh, oh, did I confuse uh, that? A fellow Britisher of uh, a fellow British uh, uh, contemporary of uh, John Bowlby. And um, so trauma, we often think of it as uh, terrible, dire things happening to people, um, such as Tara describes in her own book, Educated, identifiable abuse. Um, and those events are traumatic, for sure. But the word trauma itself or, uh, derives from a Greek origin, meaning a wound, a wounding. So trauma is a psychic wounding. And there's two ways you can wound people. Uh, you can hurt people, children especially. First of all, by doing really bad things to them, and those are clear, the sexual, the physical, the emotional abuse. Um, when there's violence in the family, when there's an addiction in the family, when the parent is jailed or parent dies, uh, severe neglect. So these events are traumatic, and those are what are called big T trauma. But there's another way you can hurt children, which is by not meeting their needs. So the human child is born with certain needs. These needs are not arbitrary. They're not culturally determined. They're actually determined by evolution. This is our nature. And we share, by the way, these needs with other mammals. When these needs are not met, we can be wounded. Now, people can easily remember, or more easily remember, the difficult, painful things that happened. Those are the big T traumas. People have a tendency not to remember what didn't happen. And what didn't happen is that the needs weren't met. And so I've often had people come up and say, you know, I've been addicted, or I've had an autoimmune disease, or I've had cancer, or I've had a mental health issue, but I had a happy childhood. And that's when I issue what I call the happy childhood challenge. And I say, give me three or four minutes, and it never fails. Within three minutes, we can identify the pain in their childhoods that they had never thought about because it was so normalized in their experience. And that usually has to do with some essential need not being met. F primarily, the need to be seen and heard and accepted just for who you are. That's an essential human need. When I say an essential human need, in the book, there's a chapter on irreducible needs. Irreducible meaning that if those needs are not met, the child will suffer pain and a wound. That means they'll be traumatized. And in this culture, very few children have their needs met because of all kinds of influences we can talk about. But the small T trauma is when the needs that are essential for healthy development are not met, and the child, especially the sensitive child, suffers a wounding. And most people have trouble recognizing those because, as in this case of Hillary Clinton, being told to get out there and deal with bullies, it's so normalized. It's so normalized that you can talk about it in front of millions of people and nobody's going to even uh, bat an eyelash. So that's what I mean by small t trauma of quoting Winnicott, when something could happen, but it doesn't happen. Something that should have happened, but doesn't happen. And that means the child's needs not having been met. I find, personally at least, those are the most difficult to get hold of. It's, like, it's, it's sort of easier to look back at your life and say, oh, that happened and that should not have happened. But yeah. to try to come to terms with, you know, what sort of person would I be 
Not if that hadn't happened, but if I had had the sort of life where I could have told someone that was happening. Well. It's a much harder question. It's, just, it's almost impossible to imagine. You didn't have it. So it's very difficult to imagine what that would be like or to feel, even know if you're allowed to feel upset about it. You know? There's nothing to compare it to. Yeah. You, have, you don't have another life to compare this life to, so you don't know. Like, so in your case, when you, I mean, in, in educated, there are plenty of instances of, you know, traumatic inputs, but when, but when you were hurt by your brother, who did you talk to about it? Yeah, nobody. Yeah. Now, you ask any, anybody who is abused as a child, sexually or physically or emotionally, who did you talk to? And the answer is invariably nobody. Which means that by the time the traumatic event, the abuse happened, a, a, a more significant trauma had already happened, which is the child feels cut off from help. Any of you who are parents, if you ask yourself, if your child experienced physical or sexual abuse, or even the hint of it from anyone, who would you want them to talk to? You do naturally say, I want them to talk to me. And then my next question would be, and if your child did experience such things and didn't talk to you, how would you understand that? Well, the only, the only way to understand it is by the time the abuse happened, the child had already learned that he, she, they were alone and there was no support, which, by the way, allows the abuse to happen because the abuser always knows with laser-like accuracy who's got defenses, who's got support, and who's all alone. So the bully can always hone in on the victim. They have laser awareness of who is boundaryless and defenseless and unprotected. And that's why a kid can be bullied in one school, they go to another school, they'll be bullied all over again. Because the bully can always pick up on that helpless vulnerability. And that comes from the original trauma of being cut off from nurturing support. I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about the clash between those two essential needs, authenticity and attachment. And why is it that attachment when you're young, at least, always wins. Yes. So this is a theme throughout the book. Um, the child has an irreducible need for attachment, which means attachment is a drive that pulls two bodies together. Gravity is an attachment drive. It pulls two bodies together. It pulls me to the earth, but it also pulls the earth towards me. Now, in psychological terms, in child developmental terms, attachment is the force that pulls two bodies together for the sake of being taken care of or for the sake of taking care of the other. So parents have a natural attachment drive built into their brains. There was an article in the New York Times three weeks ago, two weeks ago, about there is no such thing as mothering instinct. The hell there isn't. <laughs> try and tell a mother baboon that there's no such thing as mothering instinct. Well, try and tell a mother rat that there's no such thing as mothering instinct. In this culture, we're cut off from our instincts. 
which is very different from not having them in the first place. For, for these instincts to work, they have to be evoked by the environment. And one of the toxicities, toxicities of our culture is that it actually undermines and distorts and even blunts the parenting instinct. But um, what question am I answering right now? <laughs> <laughs> or the attachment and authenticity. Yes, thank you. Uh, it's wonderful having an ADD brain, you know. Uh, so we have this need for attachment. The parent has a need for attaching to the child. As a matter of fact, research seems to indicate that the mother's need to attach for the first several months is even greater than the infant's, which is really interesting. So we have this attachment drive, without which... Yeah, they, why do we have that? Well, because without it, we can't survive. If the mother bird didn't have a, an attachment drive to the infant, that infant bird wouldn't survive. Because humans are kind of uniquely helpless for a very we, long we, time. We're totally helpless. We're very, much longer than most animals. We're totally pretty longer helpless. than most animals. Yeah. By the way, let me tell you a great story about attachment. Um, <laughs> A few years ago in British Columbia, where I live, there was a film, there was, somebody filmed um, eagles feeding in their nest, the little red-tailed hawk. Now that's unusual, because eagles feed red-tailed hawks to their babies for breakfast. But in this case, they were uh, feeding it and treating it one of their own children. And so somebody went to an ornithologist and said, well, what are these eagles particularly compassionate and empathetic? What's going on here? You won't believe this, but you know what the ornithologist's name was? Dr. Bird. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Dr. Bird said, no, no, it's not compassion, it's attachment instinct. When the mother bird or the father bird sees a little bird going like this with their, with their you know, beak, they start feeding it. <laughs> so that these, these eagles were acting out of attachment instinct. So, we have this need for attachment for the sake of survival, without which we can't sustain life. So that's an absolute need. We have another need as well, though. One of the irreducible needs of children is the freedom to feel all their emotions, from grief to anger to fear to joy, playfulness, all that. That's a need. That's a developmental need of the human child determined by evolution, because exactly, because let's face it, we didn't develop in civilization, we developed out there in nature for hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years actually. How long does a creature survive in nature without being connected to their gut feelings? So it's another survival need. And that's what I call authenticity simply from the word auto, for self, so being in touch with oneself. Being in touch with oneself. And one of the most dramatic passages in your book, which I quoted in my book, which is about how when you came to believe that, um, I don't forget how you put it, but you said that it, you thought that your brother's violence towards you didn't affect you until you realized that the very belief that it didn't affect you, that was the effect. We got so caught up from your authentic feelings. Yeah, it's, you have a way so, of putting so, it, of what authenticity is. It's just knowing what it is. Because the word gets, gets thrown around a lot. I sort of cringe a bit about authenticity because yeah. people are trying to sell me something. But yeah. um, 
which is also a topic you, you write about, but I, I like your definition here, which is just knowing our gut feelings when they arise and honoring them. Exactly. And oh. there's a lot of ways you can get cut off from your gut feelings. It can something dramatic happening, like what happened with my brother, where you maybe need to, need to dissociate. But there's also uh, more subtle ways that I think people learn who they are, the example that you read uh, from Hillary Clinton's campaign, I'm bringing home a fear uh, that I have and it's, it can't be here, there's not space in this house for it, so I have yeah. to leave it outside and I have to be a brave person. And the problem is then she is a brave person but it's also a lie because she is this other person. And the question yeah. is, well, what happens to the other person? Does she know that she's both? Does she forget? Uh, what's occurring when that happens. So there's a loss of something there, but it's hard to know what it is. Well, exactly. So what actually happens is that the child's forced into this tragic tension between if I'm authentic, which is in the case of Hillary, I'm afraid. I'm four years old and I'm afraid. That's the authentic feeling. Fear is a natural brain circuit. We have it for a good reason. Without it, we wouldn't survive. And the natural drive of the human child when they're afraid is to seek help from their attachment figures. Now if that attachment figure says you can't have fear or you can't have anger, which a lot of parents are advised by so-called parenting experts to, to um, suppress or, or, or ostracize or banish the child's anger. One very famous psychologist says, that an angry child should be made to sit by themselves so they come back to normal. But there's nothing more normal than a two-year-old kid who's angry. You know? <laughs> when the child gets the message that in order to be attached, they have to disconnect from their feelings, then there's the loss of authenticity. So the price that we pay for the attachment relationship is in this culture to give up our authenticity. Now we get disconnected from ourselves and then 30, 40 years later, we start wondering who the heck are we anyway? And whose life am I living? Because it's not coming from me. It's coming from my need to be accepted and loved and valued by other people at the cost of not being myself. So that's what gets given up. What, that what I think is so interesting about that is almost no one will have will have escaped this fully. I mean, every person I've ever met, no matter how wonderful, no matter how loving, they'll say to you, I don't, my kids can be anything they want to be except. Everybody has an except. Yeah. Every single person, you know? And, and kids know that. They get a sense of, I'm all right, and I'm a part of this family as long as I am whatever. And in some families, that's it's a big box, and in some families, it's a really little box. Yes. My family was a little bit of a small box. And, um, but, but they know, and so you leave parts of yourself out. And, and what you're saying is that in itself is a kind of fragmenting experience, that you go through life and something is missing. You've learned to let go of your own reactions, your own gut feelings. Exactly. And so the essence of trauma is disconnection from ourselves. That's the essence of trauma. So in my view, trauma is not what happened to you. It's not the events that happened. Those are traumatic. But the trauma itself is the disconnection from oneself. And I'm not the first or the only one to formulate it that way. But it makes a lot of sense to me. And then we spend the rest of our lives living out 
of aspects of ourselves, but not our true, true full selves. As a matter of fact, we develop these coping mechanisms to compensate for a loss of self, and those coping mechanisms are the source of pathology of mind and body later on. So you have this provocative thing you say where you say you like saying provocative things, I think. Uh, but one of the many wonderful provocative things you say is that personality uh, a lot of time is, 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 is a cover. What we think of as our personality is actually yes. a cover. And I have a quote from your book that says, it's sobering to realize that many of the personality traits we've come to believe are us and perhaps even take pride in actually bear the scars of where we lost connection to ourselves. Yeah. So if a child is, um, for example, uh, not uh, valued for who they are, just for who they are, they'll want to keep proving their value. And so, for example, they go to medical school, like I did, you know, and then you're going to be valuable all the time. If you're not liked for who you are, just for who you are, not for what you do, but for who you are, you might become very nice. You become these very, one of these very nice people who's always trying to please everybody else. If you don't get the attention that you need, that you do need, children need attention, not for anything they do, but just for existing, then you might become consumed by attracting your attention. And then you'll be, all your life will be worried about being attractive. Hence, you have a $50 billion cosmetic surgery industry where people are trying to make themselves attractive because they didn't get the attention they needed as children. Or um, if you are not made to feel important, you might become very demanding. And um, all these personality traits, we think they're us, but they're not us. There are coping mechanisms. So what we call the personality is actually an amalgam of some genuine traits with coping mechanisms that are compensations for the loss of authenticity. And we confuse them with ourselves and we live out of them until they lead to some kind of pathology or crisis in our lives and then we have to start wondering, well, who are we anyway? So you wrote a book called When the Body Says No. Yeah. And I was talking to a friend last night, uh, we were having a drink, and we were talking about why it's so hard to say no to people, why you feel so bad when you say no to somebody, why is it somebody says, can you do this thing for me? And everything in you is like, no, I don't want to, I don't like you that much, I don't have the time, and yet what you write back is absolutely send it over. And um, why do we do that? What is that? Well, it's very interesting. Just asking for a friend. Well, it's very interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting because anybody who's had children, you know exactly what word the child starts saying vociferously and uh, compulsively at age a year and a half. It's not yes. <laughs> it's no. Time for dinner. No. Time to put our shoes on. No. I had a friend of mine, Harold, whose son name was Ben. Ben was two years old. And Harold said to Ben, do you want an apple? And Ben said, no, I want an apple. <laughs> and, and what that has to do with is that the child has to individuate at some point from the parent. Nature's agenda is not that we should remain cute and cuddly and compliant all our lives. 
This is agenda. Are you is sure? It? I'm positive. <laughs> positive. Sorry, but I am. Uh, nature's agenda is that we should become an independent creature, knowing our own will. Now, given the, you know, there's a psychologist, a Canadian psychologist, who will remain unnamed in this particular context, but he says that parents can Im impose their will on the child because we're bigger and stronger and smarter than we are. A complete backward understanding hmm. of, um, and for that kind of stupidity, he gets rewarded with mass fame and all kinds of media attention. But actually, the child's need is to be an independent person. And so that no is actually a little fence that nature puts up. If you were growing uh, a plant in your backyard, you would, and, and there were deer or rabbit around, you put a little rabbit fence around that plant. That no is the child's little fence around his incipient little will behind which he can develop his own preferences. If we don't know how to say no, our yeses don't mean anything at all. If I invite you out for coffee and you don't know how to say no, then your yes doesn't mean anything at all. It doesn't mean you want to be with me, that you like me. You might even hate me, but you don't know how to say no. So that in order to be able to say a true yes, we have to be able to say no. Now, that's okay. As Where does the inability to say no? What is the belief, you think, when someone... Well, so what happens is the child learns, if I say no to the parent's expectations, then I won't be accepted. Hmm. So the child suppresses the no in order to be accepted. It's that same authenticity attachment dilemma that we're talking about. So we suppress our no. Now, when we don't know how to say no, we take on a lot of burdens, a lot of stresses. Those stresses have a physiological impact on the body. Those physiological impacts result in disease. And when you look at, let's look at this question of autoimmune disease in this culture. Uh, 70 or 80% of people with autoimmune disease are women, not men. It's not 50-50, it's about 70-80%. And it's worse in the case of minority women. In Canada, an indigenous woman has six times the rate of rheumatoid arthritis than that of anybody else. This in a population that never used to have any rheumatoid arthritis at all prior to colonization. Now, what's that about? In the 1930s, the gender ratio of multiple sclerosis was a one-to-one. -one. You know what it is now? Three and a half women to every man, which proves that it can't be genetic because genes don't change in a population over 80 years. And it's not the climate or the diet. It's the acculturated demand on women that they don't say no to the expectations of men and society. And so during the COVID crisis, the New York Times had an article Society Shock Absorbers, so, which is the title of a chapter in our book. And what that meant was that women took on the stress of not only their own suffering during COVID, but also the emotional travails of their children and their spouses and their families. And when their families suffered, they felt guilty. That's not a gender issue per se, certainly not a biological issue. It's an issue of cultural demands placed on a certain segment of the population. Now, when you don't know how to say no, and you take on the stress of other people's burdens, that burdens your immune system, your neurological system, your hormonal apparatus, 
and you get autoimmune disease. That's why the ratio so much in, against women. So that little no that you don't say has huge physiological consequences. By the way, there's all kinds of research supporting what I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about insight or, or, or conjecture here. I'm talking about scientific research. So do you encourage everyone to get in touch with their two-year-old and just really find joy saying no? Yeah. When the kid says no, no problem. You know? Um, oh, you don't want to have dinner now. Okay, I get it. Well, it's still time for dinner. You know? But you don't get upset about it. Right. You, don't, you, you don't stifle the child's no. You don't stifle the child's uh, desire to individuate and, and to express their own being. But, you know, in our stupidity, what do we call that? We call that the terrible twos. There's nothing terrible about it. It's perfectly natural. It's nature's agenda that this kid should become an independent person. You should celebrate it. If kids could... Uh, I've always said that if kids could be the arbiters of language. Instead of talking about the terrible twos, we'd be talking about the terrible thirties, you know, the terrible... <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to sweep out a tiny bit, and you've said that we have a, a kind of exploitative, shall we say, toxic culture, and there's a lot of directions we could go with that, but the one that really caught my interest when I was looking through my notes this morning was this definition or distinction between happiness and pleasure, mm -hmm. and how we have exploited the one and maybe possibly neglected the other. I wondered if you'd yeah. illuminate us on that. Yeah, well, consumer culture, which is the, you might say, the bread and butter of a capitalist economic system, is, is that we have to keep buying more and more, you know, it's been newer and newer. And <laughs> I, I remember being in San Francisco. Um, once with my wife, Ray, and um, we were walking on the street and there was this several layered lineup around the block. Like people were lined up around the block, I mean, you know, four blocks, you know, and lined up three or four people in a row. So I went up to one guy and I said, what's the big deal here? Like, why are people everywhere lining up? He says, oh, it's the new iPad. And I said, okay, I get it. The iPad is um, it's a great instrument, I'm sure, but why do you have to get it today? <laughs> and he said, you don't understand, man. It's the iPad. You know? <laughs> and so in this culture, uh, thrives on confusing people's needs with their desires. I think the way you had it is it, what's his name, Rob Lustig, the head defined yeah. happiness is... Um, well, pleasure is, uh, I like this, this uh, feels good, I want more. Yeah. And happiness is, I like this, this feels good, I'm, I'm content. I'm content, yeah. And I was read, I, I read some books uh, on ads and psychology a couple years ago, and I remember one thing really stood out with me is that it, it's a staple of advertising that you have to create a need in people. Yeah. Like, yeah. You have to create a sense in people that they are insufficient in some way, that they, they need this to be satisfactory. It's very similar to what we were just talking about with what you need to be you know, accepted in your family. You have to leave certain parts of your personality away and to accept it in the world. You need to have these kinds of thighs and you really need to have all these things done to you and you need to wear these kinds of clothes. And 
Um, I mean, I actually heard someone say last night that they don't even like going on Instagram anymore because they feel like it's just messing with them, you know, like all of the advertising, which it's always been like that. We've always had advertising and we've had it for a long time, but it does seem to have, there's a gamification of it in some new way where it, it feels more, more like psychological warfare to me than it used to. It, It feels, it does not feel like a, a culture that is making its its money by trying to make people well. It does not feel like that. No, the culture depends on people not being well. The culture depends on people being empty and thinking they can fulfill themselves through the purchase or the of this product or the engagement in this activity and so on. And this goes way back. Freud's son-in-law, Edward Bernays, was one of the ones that developed the modern techniques of advertising. It was all about making people feel that they need something that they only desire. And now, there's a class of people who confuse their needs with their desires. They're called infants, okay, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and young children. And essentially, the function of this culture is to infantilize the entire population, to make them believe that they need what they desire and to create these artificial desires. That's the as I said, the bread and butter of this culture. What if we all stop buying all kinds of things that we need, we think we need, but we don't really need? What would happen to the economy? So that the culture deliberately infantilizes people, making them believe that what they want is what they need. And just as you quote Robert Lustig, the, who's an endocrinologist, a pediatric endocrinologist, and he wrote this book called The Hacking of the American Mind. The, You know, there's a lot of talk about conspiracy theories, but there's such a thing as conspiracy realism. And and some of the biggest companies conspire, and this has been documented left, right, and center, Mm -hmm. to create products, whether the digital kind or whether junk foods that are designed to appeal to those segments of the brain that are most prone to be addictive. You know what this is called? It's called neuromarketing. What a beautiful phrase. <laughs> neuromarketing. Targeting your nervous system to make it addicted to things you don't need. By the way, that's the essence of addiction, is that you keep craving things that temporarily soothe you, and then they cause you harm. And that's the culture. I'm such a bright, light-hearted fellow, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't really know anybody who doesn't feel at least a little bit that way about social media and probably the internet writ large. I I don't know anybody who doesn't, I don't know anybody who spends a couple of hours on Facebook or Instagram and then comes and says, that was so good for me. It's like going to the gym, I feel rejuvenated, you know? And yet there is a quality where uh, there's this kind of cost if you're not, if you're not playing the game and you're a writer, you know, you're, I mean, kids in school that don't have it, they feel isolated, they feel like they don't know what's going on, and so there's this insane trade-off you're asked to make, where you either participate in a thing that is run by a company that is trying to game you one way or the other to get you to spend 30 minutes one day and 40 minutes the next day and four hours the next day and eight hours the next day and 10 hours, and, and, and you know you can feel it. You know yeah. that they're figuring you out. You are a puzzle, they're figuring out what does this person need to become completely reliant on our product? That's exactly. And you want to get away from it, but there are costs to that. And uh, it, it does feel like this arm wrestle with the, with the world. Just, I just don't, 
I don't think this was how, when I was a teenager, I mean, I had my problems, but I didn't have this. And it's, I'm happy about that. It's, um, it, the toxicity is almost infinite. In this case, we actually know that kids, young kids who spend more time on digital media, their brain circuits are affected by it in a negative way. The brain circuits of emotional intelligence and of cognitive sense are affected by spending time. But those companies don't care. We have uh, iPads for one-year-olds. Now, um, if you look at actually the social media, it's designed to supplant without meeting genuine human needs. So what happens on Facebook? It's actually designed to meet in a false way people's attachment needs. Hmm. What do people do on Facebook? They like each other. Liking is an attachment dynamic. They have friends. That's an attachment dynamic. <laughs> Facebook itself, the name itself, Facebook. Think about it. You're presenting a face to the world. My friend, uh, the psychologist Peter Levine, talks about mothers who Botox themselves, which means that the muscles relax so they can't smile at their kids in a, in a responsive mm. way. He says that Facebook is the Botoxing of the masses because we all present this phony face to the world that we concoct and then we hope people will like our phony face, which even if they do, it doesn't satisfy the inner sense that they don't even know me, they don't even see me. So even when lots of people like us, mm. it doesn't satiate, it just creates more of an addictive need to get more and more likes. So it's a Botox culture. There's a great book by Jaron Lanier, have you heard of this, called You Are Not a Gadget? And he makes an argument that, and the heroes were ages ago, is so prescient, but he, he basically said that one of the problems with the internet or any, any digital manifestation of yourself, any attempt to live as your avatar, whether that's your Facebook avatar, your Instagram avatar, is yeah. Any, any, he, he's a computer scientist, is any time that we represent reality digitally, we always underrepresent it. We never can get all the richness, yeah. even of a single musical note. We have yeah. to pick like a very specific thing. We, we always have to compress and underrepresent. He said there's a problem when people start living their social lives online, which is that it's, it's just flat, boring, colorless. Like you are much more interesting than your avatar. Exactly. Uh, and, and the issue, I think, is people start to identify, I think, more almost with their avatar than with their real life. Do you know the joke and about the... And they're bored, because it's boring. Facebook's a quite boring place, if you think yeah. about it. It's, it's like Do you know the, the joke about the old guy who says, uh, you know, I'm not good with media, I'm not good with gadgets and computers, I don't understand them, but, uh, you know, I started my own uh, in-life Facebook project, so... I go up to strangers in the street and I, I say, I had a muffin this morning for breakfast. You know? <laughs> and, uh, or, I, or I show them pictures of my vacations. Or, or, or I go up to total strangers and I say, will you be my friend? And uh, he says, I, also, I already have six followers. He says, three psychiatrists and three policemen. You know? <laughs> it's nuts. And, and yet, you know, Knowing everything I know, I find myself very easily drawn into that vortex of, 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 of just coasting on YouTube. You know, it's totally addictive. 
and it's totally unsatisfying, <laughs> and yet, look how many people are suffering because of somebody, what somebody says about them on social media. It's as if it was real. By the way, let me read you something. Uh, this, I'm sorry, I, I just got to read this. This is... Um, You're so, going to read your Amazon review, aren't you? The Amazon review, yeah. Uh, so, so <laughs> if I can find it, I just, I just want to read this to you because uh, you might all want to go home and, uh, and, and not pay any attention to... Because this is a review on Amazon of my new book. Now, it's, the book is already you know, doing very well on Amazon, as you can see. Uh, but it's had three reviews already, and one of them gives one star, and this guy says, filled with conspiracy theories, bigotry, pseudoscience, and misinformation based on feelings, political propaganda, and DMT dementia. <laughs> so, you may not wish to get this book based on... So, <laughs> you should put it but, on the but, cover. But, you can move my quote. <laughs> that right. But, but, but how many people actually live by what other people say about them. And uh, the, the Catholic monk, uh, Thomas Merton, talked about what a strange world it is when we actually live in other people's imaginations. I have some questions for you. Please. That aren't my questions. Yeah. Um, so. Well, these uh, are from the audience, are they? Yeah, they're from the audience. OK, yeah. Uh, I'm not making it up. Um, I had a, I, I, I talked to your friend uh, Bessel van der Kolk once, who wrote an amazing book, Body Keeps the Score, and he said to me, um, <laughs> he said, I bet you have a lot of people telling you that you are resilient. And I said, yes, I do have a lot of people telling me that. And he said, you know, the thing is, you never know if someone is resilient until you are married to them. <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe, which I think is so true. Uh, anyway, that's just... That was a preamble for the question. Um, how can attachment benefit a partner, a wife or a husband, or hurt a partner? What are some resolutions uh, to dealing with partner attachment? With? I think maybe this question is trying to get at how maybe how couples work with attachment disorders in, inside of a couple, or what you do maybe when your partner is struggling. Well, so here's my experience, my observation, and also a lot of evidence that we always find as a partner somebody at the same level of trauma resolution as you're at. You may think you're marrying somebody who's more traumatized than you are. Uh-uh. <laughs> if... If they were more traumatized than you, you wouldn't have anything to do with them. If they were less traumatized than you, they wouldn't have anything to do with you. <laughs> no, the, the trauma may show up in different ways so that it might be hard to distinguish. You might think, oh my God, all these terrible things happened to them. None of that happened to me. I'm not talking about the external events. I'm talking about the internal wound. So you always marry somebody who's just as wounded as you are, whether that wound is partially healed or unhealed, they're at the same level of woundedness that you're at, which means that don't diagnose your partner. <laughs> because in diagnosing your partner, you're diagnosing yourself. The question is, it's a given that we married somebody or we get into a relationship with someone at the same level of woundedness as we are. The question is, is there ground between the two of you for an honest, uh, examination of self in the context of relationship and can we make room for that mutual growth and is there a partnership so uh, you know 
as I say in my book, in the first chapter, is that my problem is that my, my you know, you know the old joke about the, the guy sitting in the bar and it's late at night and it's closing time and the bartender is looking this bored expression on his face, cleaning the bar. And there's one guy still sitting there deep in his drink and he says, you know, my problem is that my wife doesn't understand me. Well, my version of that is sit, I'm sitting in the bar at three in the morning, eyes glazed, the bartender is cleaning the, the bar and I'm saying to him, my problem is that my wife understands me. <laughs> and I, 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 married, I married somebody exactly at the same level of woundedness as me. And we've had a difficult time of it over the years, including this morning. <laughs> but we're committed to the truth of ourselves. We're committed to figuring out what's going on, not with the other with ourselves. So this year we're going to celebrate the 53rd anniversary and it's because um, if you knew how hard it had been you, you'd be giving us a standing ovation. You wouldn't just be... <laughs> but, but that's the point. So that don't worry about diagnosing your partner. Look at yourself to see what you bring to the relationship. It's much more difficult, but much more rewarding. I have a question here that says, is inner work, therapy, meditation, or outer work, action, speech, more urgent to heal our toxic culture? Is inner work selfish? Well, I'll tell you. Um, so I've been a political activist before I, was, I got into psychological work. I mean, I was one of those 60s university radicals, and we're going to save the world and change the world. And I used to be filled with so much rage. And uh, I don't have to mention the issues, but a lot of rage. And there were these psychologists around who said, you know, this rage that you're exhibiting is just your anger at your parents. Well, on the one hand, they were just trying to justify the system and dismiss our legitimate concerns about the injustice, the inequality, the murderous Vietnam War and all that that we're angry about. But on the other hand, they were right. So that the rage that I brought to the political activity didn't have to do with the causes that I believed in, passionately as I did. It had to do with the rage that I hadn't worked out in myself. So the most selfless thing you can do is to work on your issues. You'll be that much more effective when you do your political work. There's no, con there's no contradiction between the two. And we've seen this. People in the most um, justified causes behave in ways that are undermining their own work because they haven't dealt with their personal issues. There's no contradiction. You don't do the one without the other. So that it's nothing selfish about it. It's actually selfless to work on yourself, the better to serve the public good. Which is, by the way, was typically something that politicians just refuse to do. I mean, it's amazing when you read the biography of politicians, the biographies of politicians, just how resistant to self-reflection they are. It, it's, it's chronic, it's consistent. So no, self-reflection, in fact, you know what? It was Karl Marx, who was a bit of a political activist, you'll agree with me. He said that self-reflection is the first condition of wisdom. 
How do you recommend one to reconnect with themselves in adulthood? Well, you don't go around trying to reconnect with yourself because if you're not connected to yourself, then any concept of yourself is just a concept. So how do you reconnect with the concept? You can't. But can I ask you? Uh, <laughs> no. That's okay, okay, then I won't. No, no, just <laughs> you answer first, then I'll jump in. Yeah. I think so that's here, how it So works. here's my question to you. Have you noticed in yourself throughout your life that you do something or you say something and then later on you say, well, that wasn't me, that wasn't authentic? Yes, I have done. Okay, yeah. It's All interesting. Right. I don't know if I would put it that way, but I'll have to say yes. Okay, well, who's the one that notices that? Hmm. So that that true self is there. So it's not a question of trying to find the true self. The question is to notice when we're not being true to ourselves. And then to ask, well, why not? What was I afraid of? Not being liked, not being respected, not being accepted, being rejected, being judged. And you do, those, and you do that questioning compassionately for yourself. Not, why wasn't I being myself? But, hmm, I wonder why I wasn't being myself. What was my belief that kept me from stating my honest opinion or saying what my real feelings were? What kept me from that? That's the compassionate inquiry, which is, you know, one of the themes of the book in the healing chapters. So it's not a question of trying to reconnect with yourself. It's a question of noticing um, and, 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 and observing where we're not being true to ourselves Who's the observer? Who's the noticer? That's your true self. That's interesting. I mean, I was thinking when you were talking about um, what that experience was like for me, and I think I, th I think I was very surprised. I always imagined that I had a set of good attributes. These are my good, attri good attributes. These are them. And I have a set of bad attributes. Mm -hmm. And that if I could just get rid of these ones, and have more of these ones, then yeah. I would be better. Yeah. That seemed kind of obvious. Like, I wouldn't have understood why that wouldn't be true. And it was surprising for me when I did a lot of therapy and spent a lot of time trying to figure out why I was living in such an insane way, that um, it was the opposite, actually. And mm. I found more, not that I got better when I started being more of an ass, that wasn't it, but um, well, let me try to explain this. It was more like, when I became all right with the fact that sometimes I'm selfish, yeah. Sometimes I have a desire to do things that are rude. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I do those things that are rude even. Yeah. But I have the desire a lot that I don't do it. And sometimes I have the desire to take things. Sometimes I have a desire to yeah. say obnoxious things or I don't want to clean the kitchen even when I know it's my turn. Uh, like all these things. And as soon as I was sort of okay with it, just yeah. okay that they existed. It's, you know, like I'm not going to live there all the time. I'm not going to do it necessarily. But I'm all right that that impulse is a part of me as a being. I've stopped freaking out every time it even gets hinted at. Yeah. I found I calmed down quite a bit. And I also found I was a nicer person. Because mm. when other people did those things, I wasn't just incensed that the world mm. wasn't exactly the way I wanted it to be. And everyone wasn't living to this perfect standard. And I found myself just calmer. You know, someone would cut me off in traffic. And I would have a second of like, oh, how could they? And then I would be like, well, I did that a week ago. 
Like I can't get, yeah. I can't get that mad about it. Like maybe they're in a hurry, maybe they're having a bad day. Like, yeah. and then you go on with your life. And there's something that was very confusing, and I can't articulate it. But I actually found <clears throat> it was in accepting the bad list that I became a calmer, nicer person because I had a lot yeah. more tolerance for other yeah. people's bad list. Yeah. Once I had dealt with my own. Well, absolutely. I mean, what you're talking about is self-acceptance, and. Uh, um, even that phrase badness is a loaded one, isn't it? There's already a judgment there. Um, and so what I recommend there is, is noticing when we're judging ourselves and noticing when we're rejecting parts of ourselves and, and we think some aspect of ourselves is acceptable, some isn't. Well, remember what I said? about the irreducible needs of the child is to be fully accepted for exactly how they are? Well, when the environment doesn't give that to us, we don't develop that self-acceptance either. And that lack of self-acceptance itself is one of the impacts of trauma. So that what I hear you describing is a gradual, very welcome, um, welcoming of yourself. And you might we get these standards. They can come from social media. They can come yeah. from religion. They can come from our families. And I think what's interesting is that we're all sort of, we're animals, really. We're sort of working it out. But yeah. we're all, we all have these old brain systems, really natural. I mean, your friend Bessel also said this to me. He said, you know, healing is about your relationship to yourself as a yeah. creature. Yeah. And I thought it was that last sentence that is so interesting. To mm -hmm. just have a, the ability to look at yourself not as this perfect upstanding mother that you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be perfect, you're supposed to be a perfect colleague, you're supposed to be, but just as a creature, you're, you're a thing with a really old brain that's responding to a lot of stimuli with a, a you know, and just to having a little bit of a sense of these standards, what are they, and, and they don't seem to apply here necessarily. Like where did we, where did they come from and why do we put so much weight on them? Well, let me find a quote from the book um, from, um from uh, Brave New World, um, All the Success Brave New World, and here it is. Um, and he said, this is, you know, a fictional world where people are gestated in test tubes and they're programmed to be certain ways to serve the needs of the elite and, and, and social expectation. And so here's the quote. And that put the director sententiously that is the secret of happiness and virtue, liking what you've got to do. All conditioning aims at making people like their inescapable social destiny. Now, Bessel, who you're talking about, says at some point in his book, um, The Body Keeps the Score, that we're told all the time that we're individuals, but actually we barely exist as individual creatures. And, uh, in the book, I give the example of, uh, of the ant colony where, surprisingly enough, all the ants have the same genetic inheritance. The queen ant is no different genetically from the worker ants. It's the needs of the colony that determines her queendom. And when, if you take the queen ant out of the colony, the worker ants, will, some of them will start this ferocious fight as Siddhartha Mukherjee described in a wonderful New Yorker article a few years ago, 
and then one of them will become the queen and physiologically she changes. She starts ovulating, she becomes bigger and she has more longevity and she achieves dominant status all because of the needs of the colony. Genetically she's the same as everybody else. And so we live in a culture, you know, we're not like ants, we don't have the same in genetic inheritance in our particular communities or societies. But in terms of our development, we very much develop in terms of what society expects from us, just like they do in Brave New World. And again, there's this tension between attachment to our society or being authentic to ourselves. And in the very last pages of the book, I go back to um, uh, Abraham Maslow, the psychologist who studied self-realization, self-actualization, which is people who felt okay about themselves and felt good about themselves and accepted themselves and fulfilled themselves despite or independent, irrespective of social expectations. And he says that these people were healthier than their unhealthy society. And he says, he points out they were neither automatic compliers or automatic rebels. They just followed their own calling and instinct or, or intuition or, 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 or sense of self-guidance. So they weren't reflexively hostile by any means at all, but they were all distinct from their less healthy culture. So that this sense of having to belong and having to comply and conform, it's culturally imposed. We don't even realize it. And we don't realize the extent to which we conform to it. In this culture of rugged individualism, we're very much programmed to comply and to conform. I have one more audience question for you, yeah. and then I have one more of my own questions. And sure, please. That will be then. Uh, what is the hope for families where parents have made mistakes? Does recognition and apology help? You should ask my kids. Uh, <laughs> They're sick of my apologies and my... Uh, <laughs> kids don't want to be seen as manifestations of their parents' guilt. They want to be seen as individuals with their own possibilities, capabilities, and their own particular path. Now, if anyone recognizes the formative influence of early childhood experience, it's, I'm certainly one of them because of the work that I've done. And so I've done a lot of guilt-ridden parenting with my kids and apologizing and explaining. They're sick of it. <laughs> they need to find their own path. So it's not a question of having made mistakes. Uh, fact is we all do. We all can't help. To the extent that we're traumatized when we have, before we have kids and to the extent that we haven't worked it out, before we have kids, we're going to almost invariably pass it on to our kids, unwittingly, and uh, given the best of will and the most devoted love, we're still going to pass on our traumas. It's not a mistake, it's just a natural outcome of life, it's just how it is. By the way, a therapist once said to me, pardon the language, if your parents gave you this much shit and you give your kids only this much, you've done a great job. Okay? <laughs> So the best, gift, the best gift we can give to our kids is not to apologize and mea culpa and all that. Um, my son Daniel, with whom I wrote 
this book, and we thought it was brilliant help. I couldn't have written it. We've been through our stuff. In fact, our next book is entitled Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Adult Children and Their Parents, which is a workshop that we're going to do at Omega here in, at the end of October. We've been doing it for a few years. My kids know the mistakes that I've made, but it's on them now. They have the ones that have to take responsibility for themselves. There's nothing I can do to undo what happened in our family when they were small. What we can do as parents now is to continue our own healing as, a, as an example and be present for them now in a supportive fashion as they face and deal with their own challenges. So drop the guilt. It's not merited, it's not helpful, and it's not respectful for your children. Because nobody wants to be seen as somebody else's mistake. They need to be seen as individuals in their own right. And I, I can tell you myself that the more my own healing has proceeded, the less uh, tragic I become with my own kids. So that's what I recommend. There's got to be a healthy balance, though, where I, I agree with you. I wouldn't think it would be so healthy for a family to be constantly having a dynamic where the parents just endlessly apologize. But yeah. I also think, I, I, you know, I come from a family where a lot of things are just sort of denied and they happen and almost while they're happening they're denied and it's very difficult to function in that and then there'll be one or two people my sister-in-law is one of them who they just like this is happening what is going on and having having things acknowledged is, it seems mm. is pretty crucial I, acknowledging I yes and and some degree of health remorse is, is 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 necessary and beneficial but sort of an ongoing sense of guilt yeah and an endless apology is actually Undermining. Yeah. Yeah. You have some really uh, interesting thoughts in your in your book about um, anger and rage and why you don't necessarily want to suppress and the, the, the ways that people can actually be quite angry if you measure their their skin reactions, but they don't have a conscious awareness that they're angry. Yeah. So, unfortunately, we didn't have time to go into all the things about anger, but imagine that we did. And we talked about how anger is, is really can be helpful and it's like a natural phase that you might want to go through. But I wanted to end on the phase that comes after anger, which is um, hopefully, I think, forgiveness. We forgive others, we forgive ourselves. And you have a really beautiful story in your book. Um, I thought the, the point of it to me was how we forgive other people really for ourselves. We don't, we don't forgive them for them. And you tell the story of Dr. Edith, how do you say her last name? Egger. Egger. And so she is a Jewish woman from Hungary. Her parents were taken to Auschwitz and they were killed there. As she was herself. Yeah, she was also taken there. Uh, but she survived. And she wrote a book called The Choice about how she chose to travel to the Bavarian Alps. And there she decided to forgive Adolf Hitler for what yeah. he had done. Yeah. And you quote this passage. I'm just going to read it. So I stood on the side of Hitler's former home and forgave him. This had nothing to do with Hitler. It was something I did for me. I was letting go, releasing that part of myself that had spent most of my life exerting mental and emotional energy to keep Hitler in chains. As long as I was holding on to that rage, I was in chains with him, locked in the damaging past, locked in my grief. To forgive is to grieve for what happened, for what didn't happen, and to give up the need for a different past, mm -hmm. to accept life as it was and as it is. Yeah. 
That's a beautiful teaching from Edith, by the way, who probably traveled to Auschwitz on the same train that my grandparents did, because they came from the same small town in southern Slovakia. Um, and what she's talking about there is not, she's not making it okay for Hitler to have murdered all those millions. That's not what she's talking about. She's talking about letting go of her own resentment about the past, that the past should have been different than the way it was. And that's been very important in my own journey. Um, it was Bessel van der Kolk who said to me once, here in New York, we were living, uh, both speaking at the conference together at Omega, actually. And Bessel, we were having lunch, and Bessel peers over to me at over his glasses, and he says, Gabor, you don't have to drag Auschwitz around with you everywhere you go. And I wasn't quite sure at the time. I knew sort of what he meant, but I didn't quite get it. But it took some time for that lesson to sink in and, and, and for me to experience what that meant. And what that meant is that the past doesn't have to be any different. In fact, it can't be any different. It'll never be the case that my grandparents were not killed in Auschwitz. It'll never be the case that I wasn't given to a total stranger in the street of Budapest by my mother, so I didn't see her for six weeks in order to save my life. That'll never be the case. But the meaning I make out of that, which is the traumatic imprint, that therefore the world is a horrible place, that therefore I have to resent the world, that therefore I'm not lovable, that therefore I'm being rejected all the time and I can expect rejection or abandonment, I can let go of that. And that's what Bessel meant. And when Edith forgave Hitler, she just let go of all, the, all that meaning that she'd given the past. And I think that's the essence of healing. And so when I talk about trauma being the, not the events that happened to us, but the wound that we sustained, those meanings that we created out of those early experiences, and we couldn't have created any other meaning. As a one-year-old, as an 11-month-old, I could not have made any other meaning from my mom giving to a stranger than that she was rejecting me and I was being abandoned. Healing is gaining the freedom to create new meaning out of our lives and to let go of the meanings that we created out of those early experiences when we had no choice in the matter. So that's what Edith was doing there. And I think that's the beautiful lesson in her story. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.